Hey guys, it's Michelle. And Brandy. And this is Spooky Shit. So, this week we're doing something a little different. We are both going to be talking about Jack the Ripper and possible Jack the Ripper cases. So, we're going to be going back and forth a little bit with Brandy starting. Mm-hmm. These are possible. Possibly yeah. related. Yeah. The first two. Yes. And then I'm going to talk about the canonical five, which most people think for sure are Jack the Ripper. And then I'm also going to talk about the suspects of that. And then we're going to go back to Brandy again. And then I'm going to talk about six other victims that are linked They're, to Jack the yeah, Ripper. maybe him. Maybe. Most likely. Makes Ooh. sense. Okay. And then... On top of those six, there's eight more alleged victims that are semi-related that just are, are similar. <laughs> you know, they're not confirmed. They're just kind of semi-linked. A little suspect, though. Yeah, a little suspect. Okay, so... A little sus. Yeah, a little sus. There's going to be a lot of back and forth this week, and um, it's going to be an extremely graphic episode, at least my part, so... Oh, mine too. Um, yeah, no. It's, um, it's dark. It's extremely dark, so leave now if you don't like that. But some of y'all love that shit, so. I, know, I know me and Brandy do, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take it off. Woohoo! So the first two cases in the Whitechapel murders are not included in the Irena canonical, canon, canonical, 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 canonical. But it's definitely not that one. <laughs> canonical. Anyways, they're not included in the known five, yes. but were linked. <laughs> By police for the similarity of the savagery of the murders, lack of motive, and the closeness of location and dates to the murders that followed. So the first victim was Emma Elizabeth Smith. Before her life as a prostitute, very little is known about her. A detective wrote that her past was a closed book even to her intimate friends. All she ever told anyone about herself was that she was a widow who more than 10 years before had left her husband and broken away from all her early associations. Oh. It's kind of like, what? What Maybe happened? she killed her husband. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Once when Emma was asked why she had broken away so completely from her old life, she replied a little wistfully, they would not understand now any more than they understood then. I must live somehow. Is it like maybe they weren't... Oh, this is before she became a sex worker, huh? Yeah. I was going to say, maybe they didn't understand that. Emma, what were they getting? I don't know, but I was like... She's a little mysterious. Yeah, I was like, I don't know more about her. (laughs) But we never will. Well, damn, why she... That's the fun part about old cases, man. That's true. Um, So now I'm going to get a little graphic. We warned you. We did. So on April 3rd, 1888... At approximately 1.30 a.m., Emma was robbed and sexually assaulted. Her face had been bludgeoned, and she received a cut to her ear. A blunt object was also inserted into her vagina, (gasps) rupturing her peritoneum. I don't don't know know if I'm pronouncing that that right. But it sounds bad. It is bad. Basically, the The peritoneum... (laughs) Neum, mm-hmm. that's what it looks like. That's what you know. That's what it looks like. It would sound like something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is basically the lining of the abdominal cavity that covers most intra-abdominal organs, like your stomach and intestines. Oh my god! And a, 
How did they get all the way up there? Went through like her cervix Bro, and everything they, too. Bro, like, they they <gasps> fucking like murdered her. Um, yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of funny. Not the murder. <laughs> Just Randy's laugh. She initially had survived the attack, and although she was extremely injured, she managed to walk back to her lodging house, where she was able to get help, and she stated to a de- 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 oh, what? A deputy. Oh. I don't know what I was trying to say. <laughs> deputy Mary Russell that she was attacked by two or three men, one of whom was a teenager. Ugh. After arriving to the hospital, she fell into an a, co- a coma and died at 9 a.m. the next day. Oh, my God. It's so crazy. I was like, she was, like, conscious enough to say all this stuff about her attackers, mm-hmm. and she still was actually, like, so injured she ended up dying. I don't know. It just seems like if you're able to tell somebody about it, like, oh, you're going to last. You're going to survive. But, but no. no. Oh, my God. Also, she pointed out it was the 1800s. Yeah. You could literally die all the time. Of anything. <laughs> of anything. And At hers any was time. especially brutal. <laughs> yeah. So she basically died of peritonitis, which is the inflammation of the peritoneum. Oh, so it was the sexual assault that ended up killing yeah. her. Fuck. And it's just so sad, the symptoms of it. Um, severe pain, swelling of the abdominal. Ad- abdomen abdomen uh, yes that mm-hmm. <laughs> i say that word a lot in my stories <laughs> um, fever or weight loss Aww. i was like damn she was like in so much pain hopefully they got like some morphine or whatever maybe I like straight so. heroin back then true so the police made every effort to track down the person or persons responsible but the investigation proved fruitless and no one was ever caught mm. They did interrogate thousands, no, not thousands, hundreds <laughs> of people, but nothing came about it. Fuck. And although her death is linked to the Whitechapel murders, many believe her case isn't related, just similar. Yeah, I could see it's similar, but spoiler alert for later. A good spoiler alert, Jack the Ripper doesn't sexually assault people. In my stories. That doesn't mean he doesn't sometimes, though. I feel like a little expert now. I spent three days researching, and I'm like, uh, actually, Jack wouldn't do that. <laughs> I know him so well. Maybe he had an accomplice. <laughs> his episode name already. Accomplice. <laughs> it's like his horse assistant. Clomping <laughs> oh, around. I hate myself. Oh, that was too good. <laughs> Anyways. Don't focus on me. Police actually suspected it was... Um, the work of a criminal gang because prostitutes are often managed by gangs and they believe her attack was like a punishment for disobeying them or as part of like intimidation. Oh my tactic. god. So Which is fucked. like, yeah, super fucked. Like, like, who are you trying to intimidate? You just killed her. Intimidate other prostitutes. Right. Or basically, like, make her, what do you call it? Like, I don't know, like sacrificing her to prove a point yeah, to everyone, though. Like basically. a martyr. But in a bad way. Yeah. I don't know the word you're looking for. Yeah. If you couldn't tell. But I mean, it's close enough. So the second victim is Martha Tabram. And she was also a prostitute. Mm -hmm. She was born May 10th, 1849, and was the youngest of five. She eventually went on to marry a man named Henry Samuel Tabram. Oh, yeah. I forgot to say her, like, maiden name was, uh, 
Martha White. Okay. So she went on to marry this dude, Henry Samuel Tabram, and they had two sons with him. Oh. And they had two sons with yeah. him. Yeah. She had two sons. I was Jesus, like, oh, non <laughs> Hey, she might be, or Shit, they might then, be. You know nobody respected that. Yeah. I mean, today no one respects that, True. for real. True. So her marriage didn't really work out because it turns out she had a she was a heavy drinker, which caused many alco- <laughs> alcoholic. Yes, okay. alcoholic fits. Oof. Wow, I'm really struggling. It's okay. You every week. Wow. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so shocked too. every time. I know. <laughs> I'm just waiting for you to get to the part where you're like, and then what? <laughs> It might happen. It's my favorite part every week. (laughs) It really does happen. (laughs) It does. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so eventually her husband had enough and left her. I'm not sure how or why it all started, but for about three years, he paid her an allowance of 12 shillings a week. I noticed that in some of mine, too. I think it was like basically alimony or spousal support. Spousal support. Maybe. I don't know if uh, women, I'm sure weren't making as much as men back That's then true. so but then he reduced it to two shillings when she, he heard that she was living with another man <laughs> <laughs> which, which i just thought it was funny because it was literally like a huge cut that's ridiculous like it was six originally no it was 12 oh it was 12 12 oh, to 2 oh, okay so she's not getting a sixth of what she was getting yeah. before. That's hardcore. I was like, no. That's fucked. The other man was Henry Turner, who she lived on and off with until her death. On August 7th, 1888, Martha was found murdered on the, on a staircase at 5 a.m. She had been stabbed 39 times in the body and neck. Um, nine times in the throat, five in the left lung, two in the right lung, one in, once in the heart, and five in the liver, two in the spleen, and six in the stomach. Jesus Christ, Brandy. Yeah. What the fuck? Uh, oh no. Oh my god. The list um, but done. the six in the lower part of her stomach actually wounded her lower, uh, how do you say it? Abdomen. Abdomen and genitals. Ugh. She was found laying, lying on her back and her clothing was raised to her middle, exposing her lower half, which indicated a sexual position, but no evidence was found to support the possibility of, like, that sex assault, happened yeah, or sex anything? intercourse. Maybe he was pretending to be, like, a client. Because she was a sex worker, too, yeah? Mm-hmm, she was yeah, he could have been pretending to be a client. I was like, oh, lift up your skirt. Stab, 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 stab. On the staircase. 1800s was a freaky time. Just do it anyway. Yeah, shit. The craziest part is they say she had been murdered around 2 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. And a cab driver had actually gotten home at 3.30 a.m. And had actually seen her body. But because it was like, there wasn't, there wasn't good lighting. Like, uh-huh. it was just dark. He just thought she was a hobo sleeping. On the stairs? Yeah. <sighs> well, I mean, I guess I did just say stuff could happen on the stairs. But still, damn, dude, check. Yeah, I guess. But I, I mean, mean I guess I tired. wouldn't wake up a homeless person if I saw them be like, are you alive? <laughs> True. I, okay, all right. I can see it now. <laughs> <laughs> On the night of the murder, there had actually been a patrolling beat officer. I don't know why they call him that. Anyways, 
Um, he was nearby, like, just patrolling. I love so. He was near where the body was found, right? That's yeah. Like, okay. Um, and he also, like, I guess he interviewed some guy that was, like, sus. Okay. But... But he didn't know that she was murdered yet, did yeah, he? Yeah, no. Okay. Not until after he was asked to pick a man believed to be the man he saw that night. And on two different... Ca- like, he... They, they, they had a lineup. Okay. And he picked two different guys on two different occasions. Ay, ay, ay. Um, both turned out to have rock-solid alibis. <laughs> so it was, like, kind of, like... There's no way he would remember somebody that he barely talked to. Yeah, like, nah. But I guess he chose two different people, and both of them, like, were clear because they had alibis. Oh, and I was just kind of like... Sorry, my warbell fell. <laughs> that one I could see being Jack the Ripper, though. Just because given her home life beforehand. Told you guys, I'm an expert now. Are you? It sounded very similar to some of my stories, which you'll hear. Yeah, well, you're next. Oh, oh it's my turn? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because then uh, the other ones are after the year five. Oh, shit. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're next. And I was like, yeah, I am after you're all done. <laughs> yeah, I'm done. <laughs> okay. All righty. So mine is going to be really long. God bless you if you keep listening. Because this is the most notes I've ever written about anything ever. I'll try to get through it quickly, though. So, since Jack the Ripper was never found, it's actually uncertain how many people he killed or how many murders around this time were really committed by him. So, I'm going to talk about the canonical five, which are almost definitely him, but even then, people aren't 100% sure about all of them. It's a fun time. So, just a little bit of backstory about the area and time period this takes place in. Whitechapel is an area in East London, and back in the late 1800s, it was extremely overpopulated. Most of the people there were living in poverty. I read a statistic that said 55% of the children born in the East End died before the age of five. Damn. The source for that was from my book, though, that I do not own. So, I, I love every episode. I would say stuff, and I'm like, but that might be a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> So, uh, Whitechapel was a hotspot of criminal activity where robbery, violence, sex work, and alcoholism was pretty common. It was basically looked down as a, quote, notorious den of immorality, uh, which is just a quote from Wikipedia that I was like, I love this. (laughs) Some of this was definitely probably just people being assholes about the homeless. Another thing I read said the district had 233 common lodging houses, which you mentioned a lodge house before. It's basically like a room where you're able to stay the night on the cheap, and it's filled with, like, a lot of people. And in these 233 buildings, around 8,500 people slept there nightly, so that's 36 people per lodging house on average. That's fucking crazy, and you know these probably weren't that big of houses either. But yeah, anyway, a series of violent murders surprisingly did nothing to help Whitechapel's reputation. So, I'm going to start on the victims and the murders. So, again, trigger warning because this is really graphic, but if you got past Brandy's, you could probably handle mine. So, Mary Ann Polly Nichols. Polly was the nickname. Uh, she was born Mary Ann Walker, too. She was born in eight... I love how many times I'm saying born. But she was born in 1845 in London. Polly was described as being five foot two with graying brown hair and either gray or brown eyes. She was said to have small, delicate features and a small scar on her forehead from when she was a child. Future roommate Emily Holland said she was, quote, a very clean lady who always seemed to keep to herself. And one person, I didn't write this down, so I'm not sure how exactly they were involved, but whenever they were doing her 
medical examination after she died, they noted that she had very clean thighs. So, good for Polly. She was clean. I don't know. That was just such a weird compliment to face up Yeah, that's a little creepy. So, Polly got married at 18 to a man named William Nichols, and they went on to have five children together between 1866 and 1879. Damn. Yeah, a lot of fucking kids. Bessie. So they lived at home with Polly's father until 1880 when they moved into their own home with their children. Not long after the move, the couple was separated and William took four of the children to live with him and the fifth, I believe, went to live with Polly's dad. So it's not known for sure what caused the end of their relationship, but Polly's father said that William left his wife after beginning an affair with a nurse who was there for the birth of their fifth daughter. Which is so fucked if that's true. Fuck. But William claims that the marriage problems were caused by Polly's alcoholism, and he only began the affair with the nurse after she had left him and begun doing sex work. So there's no denial here. He did hook up with the nurse who was there when his (laughs) child was born. But it sounds like alcoholism was kind of common with these ladies. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Alcoholism and sex work. Whenever you said those two, I was like, whoa, he had a type. (laughs) He truly did. He really did. How old were your victims again? It's okay if you didn't write them down. I didn't. Okay, yeah. Mine are all, like, around 40. Well, yeah, I don't know. Well, you were when they were, when one of them was born. Do you know the year? 1849. Okay, so she was around 42. Yeah, she was. Yeah, so. And then the other one, we, I, there wasn't probably didn't say. But I'm assuming she was around the same Around age. 40. <laughs> okay, it cool. Makes sense. Um, over the years, Polly was arrested for some minor offenses, like being drunk, disorderly conduct, and prostitution. For a few years, she was still getting weekly support from William, just like your person was, Mm. as he was legally required to send her an allowance of five shillings, but he basically told on her for being a sex worker, and he got out of it because he didn't, he got out of sending her any money, because if she was making money through, quote, illicit means, he didn't have to send her anything. Damn. He tattled on her. Damn. He fucking tattled on her. Little bitch. Little bitch is right. So, for the most part, she had been living in workhouses or boarding houses, but at times she did just sleep rough on the street. At one point during the summer of 1888, Polly was living in a lodging house on Thrall Street where she shared a bed with an elderly woman named Emily Nellie Holland, but she later began to stay at another lodging house on Flower and Dean Street. Around 2 in the morning on August 31st, 1888, Polly was met by the housekeeper of her lodge who asked her for the fourpence required for her bed, but Polly didn't have it and was told to leave. She didn't really seem to care and even pointed to her new black velvet bonnet, saying, quote, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. <laughs> That's my favorite thing of this entire story. Jolly bonnet. My jolly bonnet. She presumably went to go to sex work after this to make money. So two side notes here. The DOS is in reference to DOS House, which from what I could tell was a term for a not so great lodge house. And I could, could not fucking figure out what a what was it a four pence or something was or six pence i don't know what a pence is i kept looking it up and they're like oh it's worth this many blah 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 pence and i'm like but what what is a pen worth what does this mean (laughs) and i got so frustrated i didn't look up any more money for the rest of my story (laughs) so the last person to see polly alive was her old bedmate nelly who saw her walking alone down osborne street at around 2 30 a.m she said she tried to persuade polly into going back to the lodge house on thrall street but polly said no she was drunk and told Nellie how, quote, I have, mi- I have had my lodging money three times today and I've spent it. She wasn't too worried. So a little over an hour later at 3.40 a.m., a man named Charles Allen Lechmere was walking towards his work when he saw what he thought was a tarp on the ground. 
It was about 150 yards from the London Hospital and 100 yards from more public housing. But as he walked closer to the tarp, he discovered it wasn't actually tarp at all. It was the body of Polly Nichols, who was 43 at the time of her murder. She was laying on her back with her eyes open, legs straight, and her skirt raised above her knees. Her left hand was touching the gate of the stable entrance next to her. Another man on the way to work, Robert Paul, noticed Charles and walked over to see what he was looking at. Together, they looked over Polly's body and Charles touched her to see if she was alive. Her face was still warm, but her hands were cold. Charles said he thought she was dead, but Robert wasn't totally sure and thought maybe she was just drunk and passed out. And he even thought maybe she could, he could feel like a heartbeat. So after they pulled down her skirt to cover her a little, they went to find a police officer. And it wasn't even like they were actually like really searching on a police officer. They were like, shit, don't want to be late for work. So they kept going to work and they're like, if we see a police officer on the way. And Damn. thankfully they did, because otherwise that would have been fucked. So after telling the police officer what they found, they continued on their way to work while Officer Jonas Meisen went to check out the scene. When asked later how they didn't see the massive cuts on Polly's throat, they blamed the poor lighting on the street. I'm going to describe her body soon, and you're going to be like, how did these people think she might have been sleeping? While Officer Meisen was on his way, another officer named John Neal had found the body himself. He raised his lantern to get a better look, and in doing so got the attention of another officer named John Payne. He told Tane, it might be Thane, I'll say Tane, that he had found a woman with her throat cut and to get a doctor immediately. He used his lantern to check for blood trails or wheels mar- wheel marks, but wasn't able to see any. By 4 a.m., a surgeon named Dr. Lelian had arrived and after noticing two deep wounds to Polly's throat, declared her dead. He said she'd probably been killed around 3.30 that morning, just minutes before she was found. He then told the officers that Polly's body moved to the mortuary so he could examine her more thoroughly later. So news began to spread that a body had been found and many came to look around the crime scene. Three men named Harry Tompkins, John, James Mumford, and Charles Britton had walked over and were all interrogated. Two of them said how they had left work hours ago, but all three eventually were decided to not be involved. Police questioned tenants along the road and other officers who had been nearby, but nobody had seen or heard anything. By 5.20 a.m., Polly's body had been moved to the mortuary, where an inspector named Spratling discovered injuries to her abdomen and sent for Dr. Lelian. I forgot how to pronounce that. Lelian. Lowellen. Yeah, Lowellen. Sure. So, yeah, the doctor had initially just gone home. I, whenever I said he was going to examine Polly later, I think it was literally like, he was like, all right, I'm going to go sleep a little and I'll, I'll come back later. Yeah. It's whatever. Must be nice. Yeah, right? It's so weird. So upon arrival and further examination, the doctor noticed bruising on both sides of Polly's face, which he believed were either caused by a fist or by a thumb pressing hard into her. She had wounds to her neck. One was eight inches long and the other was four inches long. Both of the wounds reached back to her spine. As well as these injuries, her body was mutilated, her vagina was stabbed twice, and she had one deep cut on her stomach, as well as several more smaller incisions that left her bowels protruding through the wounds. I told you it was graphic. (laughs) She had five missing teeth, but no organs were missing. The cuts were estimated to be caused by a knife at least six to eight inches long, maybe a cork cutter or a shoemaker's knife, if any of y'all know what those knives are. (laughs) You know what a cork cutter is? Mm -mm. Oh, that's awkward. So, Dr. Lewellyn believed the attack had been carried out by someone with at least some anatomical knowledge, and they may have been left-handed as the cuts were made from the left to the right. It was determined that she was likely facing her attacker when he put his hand over her mouth and cut her throat. He believed that this, in- that this injury killed her almost immediately before the attacker went on to mutilate her. 
This was because the amount of blood on the scene didn't match the injuries, so she was likely dead before many of the cuts were made. Dr. Lewelin thought the attack likely took around four or five minutes in total, mutilations counted. So, reportedly, upon finding out about his estranged wife's death, William said, quote, I forgive you as you are for what you have been to me. Just like, way to fucking make it about yourself, William. A jury was called to deliberate and decided the means of Polly's death and came back with the verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. Her death was also maybe linked to those of Emma Smith and Martha Tabroom. And they had been killed within 300 yards of where she was found. It was really close. So, yeah, those are the two that Brandy mentioned before, if you forgot their names. I forgot that they were so close till I just read this. I've been working on these notes for, like, three days, <laughs> and I wrote this shit on, like, Sunday, and it's Thursday. So, you can see there's a little bit of a connection there, if you weren't suspecting it already. In 2014, in the documentary, Jack the Ripper, The Missing Evidence, journalist Krister Holm... Holmgren and criminologist Gareth Norris put forth the idea that Charles Allen Lechmere, the man who discovered Polly's body, may have actually been Jack the Ripper. They speculate that he had just killed her and was mutilating her body when he noticed Robert Paul and instead called him over and pretended to have stumbled upon the scene. On top of this, his home address, route to work, and address of homes he frequently visited were close to some of the other places the murders, and the dates seemed to match up, like with times that he was off work and visiting friends. Unfortunately, since this idea was brought up over 100 years after he died, there is no confirming or denying his guilt. Damn. But I could actually totally see it being him. Mm. That'd be smart. And he also worked, like, at a meat cart or a slaughterhouse, something like that. So if he had blood on his clothes, it wouldn't be unusual. The second canonical, geez Louise, (laughs) victim of Jack the Ripper was Annie Chapman, who was born Eliza Ann Smith. Annie was born in 1840 in Paddington. Her appearance has been described as being five feet tall with blue eyes, dark brown wavy hair. She had nice teeth, although she may have been missing a couple, and she had a stout build. She was the oldest of five children, four girls in total, and one boy. Her brother said that Annie began drinking at a young age and developed a weakness for alcohol, in particular rum. He, along with two of his other sisters, were able to get her to sign a pledge against drinking, but unfortunately, Annie was unable to avoid the temptation and began to drink again. Though it was recognized that she had a problem, I believe her alcoholism was on and off over the years as one of her, like, friends, I believe towards the end, described her as sober, steady-going woman who seldom took any drink. Or she was just saying that to make her friends seem better, maybe. In 1863, uh, and this is also up for debate, I only saw in a couple, uh, what's it called, sources, Annie's father, George, who was the valet to a captain of the Debingshire Yeomanry Cavalry. What words? Cool. Uh, he killed himself by cutting his throat. Oh. Yeah. So it's likely that he was working too much and didn't get to see his family, and that just made him depressed. If the story is true. On May 1st, 1879, exactly 127 years before I was born, Annie married John James Chapman. You heard that right? Same last name. They were related. No. Yep. You know they were related. (laughs) I couldn't tell how closely, so I'm just going to hope it's like really distant cousins here. (laughs) Over the years, the couple had three children, Emily Ruth in 1870, Annie Georgina in 1973, and John Alfred in 1880. So John was born with with a physical disability, and after seeking medical help for him, the Chapmans decided to place him in an institution for the physically disabled. It's believed that the stress of this made Annie go back to her bad drinking habit. 
So, adding to the grief in her life, on John's second birthday, their daughter Emily Ruth died of meningitis. Meningitis? Meningitis. I spelled it wrong. Wow. (laughs) I actually know how to say it. Yeah. She died of that at the age of 12. So, if Annie wasn't drinking heavily before this, the tragedy definitely compelled her to, and her husband again, to drink heavily as well, too. So, over the years, Annie was arrested several times, but only for minor charges of public intoxication. By 1884, Annie and her husband John had mutually agreed to separate, and John was left in custody of their daughter. Police reports from later on listed the reason for the separation as Annie's drunken and immoral ways. John was ordered to pay Annie a weekly allowance of 10 shillings, which helped her manage to live in a lodge house in Whitechapel. Again, with the allowance. Around 1886, Annie had begun living with a different man named John, but that same year on Christmas, her estranged husband, John Chapman, died of liver cirrhosis and edema caused by his drinking habits. Not long after she was widowed, Annie's new John left her, likely because she was no longer receiving a weekly allowance. One of Annie's friends said following this, she seemed depressed and like she'd lost all the will to live. So, as for 13-year-old Annie Georgina, who had been living with her father when he died, there was a weird-ass rumor going around that she joined a circus troupe in France. What the fuck? (laughs) But I don't think that actually happened, and the other option is she went to go live with her grandmother or aunt along with her brother John. But I I don't know. I do really like the idea of her joining (laughs) a French circus troupe. That's just great. That's just so random. It is. I love it. By September of 1888, Annie had been staying in a lodging house where a man named Edward Stanley would stay with her between Saturday and Sunday and sometimes pay for her bed. She had been making money from crocheting, selling flowers, and occasionally sex work. Sometime in really August or early September, Annie and a woman named Eliza Cooper got into a fight at a pub. It may have been over a man, it may have been over soap, but regardless, Eliza hit Annie and left her with a black eye and a bruised chest. <laughs> Around 5 p.m. on September 7th, Annie's friend Amelia Palmer saw her on the street and noticed that she looked extremely pale. Annie had been discharged from an infirmary earlier that day and said to Amelia that she felt too sick to do anything. Later on during her autopsy, it was found that Annie's lungs and brain membranes were extremely diseased and she actually would have died in a few months, even if she'd never stumbled upon Jack the Ripper. That night, Annie returned to the lodge house and had a beer in the kitchen with a fellow lodger at around midnight. He watched her take a broken box of pills out of her pocket, wrap the pills in a section of envelopes she found the mantle place, and leave the property. At 1.30 a.m., Annie arrived back at the lodge house, this time eating a baked potato. <laughs> She's asked to pay for her bed that night, but she doesn't have any money. She tells the night watchman, quote, I won't be long. See that Tim keeps the bed for me, and likely goes to do sex work in order to make money for the bed. Tim was in charge of the lodge house. So a little before 5 a.m., a man named John Richardson was getting home from work. He went into the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street and took a loose piece of leather out of his work boots. He looked around and didn't see anything noteworthy. At 5.30 a.m., a woman named Elizabeth Long said she saw Annie talking to a man she described as being over 40, slightly taller than 5 feet, with dark hair, wearing a brown, low-crowned felt hat, and maybe a dark coat. She overheard the man asking Annie, will you, before Annie responding yes. Elizabeth maintained that the time that she witnessed this, saying she heard the chiming of a clock nearby um, upon the half hour. If she's correct, this was the last person to see Annie alive, and it's likely that she was seen with her vic- or with her killer. I saw different sources saying different times, but between 5.15 and 5.30ish, a man named Albert Kadash at 27 Hanbury Street went into the yard to use the outhouse. While out there, he heard a woman saying, no, no. 
before hearing something falling against the fence dividing the yards at 27 29 Hanbury Street. He did not investigate. Of course he oh. did. Of course. A little after 6 a.m., an elderly man named John Davis discovered 47-year-old Annie's body laying in the backyard at 29 Hanbury Street. Her head was just six inches from the steps leading up to the house. He told three other men, James Green, James Kent, and Henry Holland, about this discovery and sent them to find a police officer. Meanwhile, he went to police station to make a report. The three men found divisional inspector Joseph Lennis Chandler and told him, quote, Another woman has been murdered. He followed them to the body before requesting additional officers and police surgeon Dr. George Bastin Baxter Phillips. When more officers arrived, he instructed them to clear the yard's passageways so that there was room when Dr. Phillips arrived. At around 6.30 a.m., Dr. Phillips was on the scene and was quick to notice the link between Annie's injuries and Polly's from barely over a week ago. Annie had two knife wounds to her neck and it appeared that after death she had her abdomen mutilated. He also thought that similar knives were likely used in both murders. During the subsequent autopsy, it was decided that Annie had been murdered sometime around or before maybe even 4.30 a.m. But remember that this is Victoria, Victorian times, so the way they checked the time that they died was just by seeing how warm the bodies were and guesstimating, basically. He even pointed out that it was a chilly morning and that could have had an effect, which I kind of believe because I think it was more around 5.30, possibly right after Elizabeth Long had seen her. And I do think that when that man heard someone say no in a noise, it was likely her. The back door of the home had been left open for residents to come and go as they please, and it wasn't uncommon for strangers to be loitering in the passageway out back, so nothing really would have looked suspicious beforehand, if anyone saw. When Annie's body was found, it was laying down with her legs drawn up, feet resting on the ground, and knees turned inwards. Her left arm was drawn across her left breast, and her face was turned on the right side. Her face and tongue were swollen. There were smears of blood about 14 inches off the ground of the fence that corresponded with the location of her head, so likely that's where the blood went with her neck. She was mutilated as well, just like Polly. So Annie was disemboweled with part of her stomach's flesh being put on her left shoulder and another part along with her small mm -hmm. intestines being placed above her right shoulder. What the fuck? What the fuck, dude? What the fuck? Annie was wearing a handkerchief around her neck before she died and that combined with a swollen tongue and face introduced the theory that perhaps her attacker had begun to strangle her with it before cutting her throat. There was bruising on her face and some other parts of her body indicating that she may put up a fight. During the autopsy, it was shown that she didn't have any alcohol in the few hours leading up to her death, and the weirdest part of it all, her bladder and uterus were missing. What the fuck? Yeah, super disturbing to begin with, but since this wasn't noticed at the crime scene, some thought maybe it wasn't Jack the Ripper who took these, but staff at the mortuary who wanted to sell them. Mm, the 1800s were so shit. fucking weird. I said black the market. Yes, that is what it's called. <laughs> I meant black market. Dr. Phillips thought the knife used to kill Annie was likely 60 inches and that he probably had some anatomical knowledge, which sounds very familiar from Polly's, uh, invest, what's it fucking called? Autopsy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Killing it. Killing it right now. But I should point out that there are experts who disagree and think the opposite, that the killer had absolutely no surgical knowledge and that he just fucking went at it. Because, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why they thought he had surgical knowledge. At first, that's what I, like, believed because that's something I'd heard. But just because he was cutting into people. I don't think he was doing it neatly. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he was just fucking crazy. It's not like he would do it, like... Yeah, it's, he wouldn't really, like, preserve things well or anything. He was just going savage. Yeah, he was just going crazy. So, it is, however, agreed that Annie died in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street 
and she had not been moved there. A jury again found her death to be caused by a murderer. Spoiler alert, all of the deaths are found to be caused by a murderer. <laughs> That's why they're called murders. That is why, oh my god. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Mind blown. On September 9th, the ship's cook named Henry, well, William Henry Piggott was briefly investigated for Annie's murder after he was detained at a pub with a hand injury while shouting sexist comments. On top of that, a blood-covered shirt was found and linked to him, but it turned out a woman had actually bitten him and the blood was his own, so he was released. So he says they weren't able to test blood back then. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was saying. Bloody shirts all over this place. <laughs> A Swiss butcher named Jacob Isenschman, nicknamed the Crazy Butcher by some, was considered a suspect of Annie's murder after he matched an eyewitness's account of a man covered in blood who was acting suspiciously the morning of Annie's death. A public house landlady had noted his distinctive large red mustache and he was known to have a history of mental illness. It was also reported that he'd been known to stay out late at night and hadn't been seen as lodging since the body was found. According to one source, investigators talked to his wife, who hadn't seen him in a couple of months since the two had a fight. He had a habit of carrying around knives, but she didn't think he'd hurt anyone but her. She also said that she thought Jacob would kill her if he had the chance, and that he hadn't been in the right mind for years. He was arrested for Andy's murder on September 13th. On September 8th, I also, okay, I just realized I said in there something about the landlord, land, 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 the landlady noticing his large red mustache. I can't remember why that's relevant. I didn't mention a red mustache earlier. I think that somebody described his mustache and I did not include it. I think that somebody earlier has seen her son with a red mustache. It must be. Otherwise, I don't know why I'm describing this dude's mustache. Yes, yes, he had a nice red It was mustache. a look. <laughs> it was a mustache. It was a mustache. And it was a mountain. <laughs> On September 18th, a 40-year-old German hairdresser named Charles Ludwig was arrested for trying to stab a young man while drunk at a coffee stall. He was later arrested again after a distressed sex worker told a policeman that he pulled out a big knife and she was afraid that he was going to slash her throat. And he was wanted for attempting to slash a woman's throat. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. So, Jacob Isenschmidt and Charles Ludwig were both later determined to not be Jack the Ripper after more murders occurred while they were both in police custody. Rumors were going around that a local man nicknamed Leather Apron was threatening sex workers with a knife and saying he would, quote, rip them apart if they didn't give him all their cash. A search began to find this man and to see if he was involved in murders, especially after Leather Apron was found close to Annie's body, although it was, like, in dishwater by whatever their version of a sink was back then. Police were led to arrest a man named John Pizer, who had been given the same nickname for his job, which was making shoes with leather. <laughs> while wearing a leather apron what the fuck <laughs> you know what the shoes were probably leather too <laughs> he was later confirmed to have an alibi for the nights of the murders and it was implied that the man who arrested him had already known him and disliked him turns out the apron they found the crime scene also belonged to a man who lived at the lodge house and had been placed there by his mom after she washed it <laughs> <laughs> love it i have read that the leather apron was like an anti-semitic thing but i don't know how but it also seemed like a lot of um, Jewish people had, like, moved into the area, and people were just super racist. Annie was known to wear two brass rings, and they weren't seen in the crime scene. Investigators were unsure if maybe they'd been taken by her murderer, or perhaps Annie had sold them herself for extra money. But regardless, police checked all the pawn shops in the area looking for them, but they were unable to recover them. 
And real quick, I'm going to tell you about a letter supposedly sent from Jack the Ripper that was written in between the second and third murders and sent to the Central News Agency of London. This letter has been dubbed the Dear Boss Letter and was postmarked and received by the news agency on September 27th and then forwarded to Scotland Yard on September 29th. I'm going to read the letter to you. Also, it was written in red ink over two pages. Dang. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff and a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I shall do, I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send them to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work and then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I can get a chance. Good luck, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. The way he worded things is fucking weird. That's why I kept pausing too. But he does say in it, I don't know if you caught on to it, that he saved some of the, one of the victim's blood to write the letter with. Yeah. That's nasty. That's so yeah. gross. And he gave himself Jack the Ripper as a name. He declared himself that whenever he like wrote it like in the, what's it called? The ending of the letter. So originally. Maybe, maybe his name was really Jack. If it was, he's an idiot for choosing Jack in the but name. I mean, but I mean, he really was. Yeah, shit. He was and that's crazy. That's why so. no one thought that it would. I don't. I don't know if any of the suspects I talk about are named Jack. Actually, two on the nose. So originally, this letter was thought to be a hoax, but I'll just let you guys know right now. The part where he talked about clipping a lady's ears, he did something like that after this. Uh, I'm gonna get to that before too long. He didn't actually mail the ears though, but you'll see. So this kind of made me think police, or this kind of made police think it was sent by the actual killer, and they even published a letter hoping somebody would recognize the handwriting, but that never panned out. In 1931, a journalist named Fred Best reportedly confessed that he and a former coworker at the Star newspaper had written this and other letters as a way to bring more attention to the case and sell more paper. I'm not sure if I entirely believe this, mostly because of the ear thing, but who knows? It could have just been like a super weird coincidence. The third canonical victim of Jack the Ripper was a woman named Elizabeth Long Liz Stride. She was born Elizabeth Goodstuff daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> yep. In eighteen forty three in Stora Tumled, a rural village in Sweden. God, I sh- struggled with that one. She was the second of four children and grew up on a farm where her and her siblings were required to perform farm chores. At 16, Elizabeth moved to the city of Gothenburg to find a job where she was able to secure a couple as a domestic servant. Elizabeth has been described as being 5'5", with a pale complexion, light gray eyes, and curly dark brown hair. She was also described as being a quiet woman. Unlike the other women so far, Elizabeth seemed to get into sex work at a younger age. She had been treated at least twice for STDs, and in 1865, Elizabeth was arrested for prostitution. That same year, she gave birth to a stillborn girl. Oh. And I, she was what? She was 22 at this time. Damn. In February of 1866, Elizabeth moved to London. 
It's not clear exactly why, as she gave different reasons to different people, such as saying she had a job secured or that she had visited family and had and like chose to stay there. But regardless, she wasn't there. It's likely she paid for a relocation with money she had inherited after her mother's death a couple years before. Once in England, she learned how to speak both English and Yiddish in addition to her native Swedish. So she is trilingual. What's Yiddish? So Yiddish was, a, uh, according to dictionary, a language used by Jewish people in Central and Eastern Europe before the Holocaust. It was originally a German dialect with words from Hebrew and several modern languages and is today spoken mainly in the U.S., Israel, and Russia. Oh. Hope that answers your question. <laughs> I thought you said Giddish, though. Oh, Giddish? No. Yeah, Giddish. <laughs> Giddish. Like, I've never even heard of that one. On March 7th, 1869, Elizabeth got married to a man named John Thomas Stride, a ship's carpenter who was also 22 years older than her. Yay. Yep. According to records, they had no children. Together, the couple operated a coffee shop in East London, but after a few years, it had to be closed due to a lack of money. By 1881, after separating once before for a while before reuniting, Elizabeth and John broke up for good. That same year, Elizabeth briefly was in an infirmary for bronchitis before being discharged. In 1884, John Stride died of tuberculosis. I love how quickly I do it. In one paragraph, I'm like, they met, they found love, they got married. Next paragraph, they separated and he died. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving through this quick, you guys. This this is so long. Okay. Now I have a weird little part of Elizabeth's life that I really wanted to share because I love it. It's it's so weird. I guess after her husband died, Elizabeth had confided in several people how her husband and two of her nine children had drowned in 1878 when the ship Princess Alice sunk in the river, river Thames. She said her and her husband had been working on the ship and she had survived by climbing onto the ship's mast. While climbing up, she was kicked in the mouth by another survivor, which damaged her palate and gave her a stutter for life. Literally all of this. Is a lie. That's weird. Yeah, her husband didn't die until 1884, and they had no children together. That's what I mentioned earlier, like, mm -hmm. I specifically said, like, there's no record of children, because I'm like, did, maybe they had children on the down low and no one knew? But yeah, basically, a lot of people think she's doing this to get pity and uh, get assistance from the Church of Sweden in London. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought that shit was fucking funny, though. In 1885, Elizabeth had begun living with a dock worker named Michael Kidney. They had an on-and-off relationship, and I'm assuming it was abusive as well, because once in 1887, Elizabeth actually filed an assault charge against Michael. But she never followed through with it, so it didn't go anywhere. Elizabeth was able to earn money through sewing and housekeeping as well as occasional sex work. She was arrested a few times for drunken disorderly conduct and use of obscene language. That one, like, really got to me, because can you imagine what all the fucking old dudes would be saying back then, like, if they listened to our podcast? Ooh. They'd be like, oh, execute them. <laughs> I wonder what she was saying to people. That's fucking funny. But anyway, on September 27, 1888, Elizabeth and Michael had broken up again, and she had gone to stay elsewhere. On September 29th, she cleaned two of the rooms in her lodging house for extra money. At 6.30 that evening, she and another Lodge House resident, Elizabeth Tanner, went to a nearby pub for a little bit before Elizabeth came home. Elizabeth and other Elizabeth only hung out that one time, so any Elizabeths in the future are the main person. I'm not sure why Elizabeth left the home again, but if I had to guess, it was to make money through sex work. At around 11 p.m., a person said they witnessed her standing with a short man who had a dark mustache who was wearing a suit with a bowler hat. A second witness said they saw her around 11.45 with a man wearing a peak cap, black coat, and dark trousers. According to this witness, Elizabeth and the man kissed before he said to her, You would say anything but your prayers. 
And I don't know if that's a fucking pickup line or what. At 12.35, and this is now technically September 30th, Elizabeth was seen by a cop with a man wearing a hard felt hat. They were standing outside of the International Working Men's Educational Club. The man was holding a package about 18 inches long. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, so the cop kept walking. Between 12.35 and 12.45 a.m., a dock worker said he saw Elizabeth standing with her back against a wall saying, no, not tonight, some other night, to a man of average build wearing a long black coat. I'd like to point out now what you guys may have noticed that all these eyewitnesses seem to describe a different man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple ideas about this. For one, I think it's possible that these were all just different clients that she happened to see this night, or that um, another obvious one is just the people fucked up and, <laughs> and saw the person incorrectly because eyewitnesses are like notoriously not good. Reliable. Reli- that's the word. Not good. <laughs> yeah, they're not reliable. Another possibility is that maybe the woman people have seen wasn't actually Elizabeth at all, but that one I am less sure of because she was found in that area. My interpretation was that she had been doing sex work that night and had at least three customers, but yeah. I also don't know if customers is the correct word for that. (laughs) Clients. Clients. That's it. Customers for sex work. (laughs) I mean, technically they are. They are. Yeah, but clients definitely sounds better. Consumers. (laughs) <laughs> oh no wrong. that one's not good but the last person that was seen through i'm guessing like she was ready to go home she was over it and that's why she was saying no some other night and maybe this just happened to be the worst fucking person that you could say no to regardless at 1 a.m that same night elizabeth's body was found a man named louis diemschutz was being driven by his horse on a two-wheeled cart when the horse suddenly moved to avoid something i had the hardest time like writing that down because they were like he was driving and i was like oh he was driving and they're like his horses and i was like oh my god he was being (laughs) driven by horses yeah (laughs) dude the 1800s were weird lewis looked around and saw a bundle on the ground that he thought maybe was just a random dark object he tried to use his whip's handle to lift it from the cart but to no avail he then left the cart got down and lit a match only to see elizabeth's dead body he ran inside the club immediately to tell everyone inside before going to find the police At the time her body was found, Elizabeth's neck still had blood flowing from her and a single deep cut to their throat. Her hands were cold, but other parts of her body were still warm. People who had left the club between 1230 and 1250 hadn't seen anything suspicious, so it's expected that the window of the time for, like, the killing was, like, literally less than 10 minutes. Which is so weird. A doctor... It's quick. It's so quick. You wouldn't expect it. I kind of, like, talk about that more later, too. (laughs) A doctor named Frederick William Blackwell arrived on the scene, followed about 10 minutes later by police surgeon Dr. George Baxter Phillips. If that sounds familiar at all, it's the same guy who examined Annie's body just weeks before. In a document Dr. Phillips later released, he described the scene. Elizabeth's body was lying on the near side. I don't know if that meant near side of the building, if she was on her side. I thought I'd include it and see what um, people interpret that as. I could have just not included it. That might have been better. (laughs) (laughs) It was there. Her body was there. Her face was turned towards the wall with a head in the yard and feet towards the street. Her left arm was extended out and holding a packet of cashews. I had to Google this word because it's spelled different. It is not like the nuts. It's basically something to cover up bad breath. Like (laughs) a mint? Yeah, maybe like a mint. I think it was like, um, it was similar to like an acai berry or some shit. It's spelled C-A-C-H-O-U-S. I was like, the fuck is this? And I googled it and it's like, cashews. And I'm like, you're not a cashew. I don't know what you are, but you're not a cashew. Cashew! (laughs) 
Her right arm was over her stomach. The back of her right hand and wrist had blood clots on it. The legs were drawn up, and there was a small cut under her eyebrow. Elizabeth had been wearing a silk handkerchief around her neck, and it was speculated by both Blackwell and Dr. Phillips that maybe the murderer had used this to pull her backwards and onto the ground before cutting her throat. This was also indicated by bruising above the shoulders like she was being pinned down. This was different from some of the other murders, where the victims appeared to have had their throats cut, like, I don't, like, face on, basically. Another difference from the other murders was that this time, Elizabeth had just one cut on her neck rather than two, and while it had gone through all the arteries and vessels on the left side, the right side was more superficial and the deep arteries weren't cut. Apparently, this means that maybe a smaller knife was used, and unfortunately, since the veins weren't like veins and arteries weren't cut on both sides she died slower than the other two victims yep but on a brighter note elizabeth was not mutilated that is that brighter though yeah i guess you're dead when you're mutilated so you don't feel it oh it's it's just sad though some people are less sure that elizabeth is truly a victim of jack the ripper because of the reasons i just listed but she's still considered one of the canonical five and i personally do think she was involved That makes it sound like she was guilty of it. I do think she was a victim of it. (laughs) She was involved. She was involved. She set it all up. She did it. She's Jack the Ripper. Shit, it's like the H.H. Holmes story. He just found a cadaver and was like, oh my god, it's me. So, Elizabeth had a similar lifestyle and age to the other woman. She was 44 at the time of her death. And you really can't ignore the whole throat cut thing, even if it was maybe with a smaller knife. It's believed by a lot of people that the killer had intended to mutilate her as well, but he got interrupted, possibly by hearing Lewis and his cart coming closer. This would also explain how there was still blood coming from her neck if he arrived there, like, literally just after she died. Because also, like, it was dark. He couldn't even really see her until he had a light. Like, someone could have just heard him coming literally seconds before and just walked away. Wild. Also, as far as her being pinned to the ground and killed in that way, some do theorize that maybe she'd willingly gone on the ground, like maybe to have sex with him, and he slashed her throat from there. During the investigation, a Hungarian man named Israel Schwartz came forward and told the police that he had seen Elizabeth being attacked around 12.45 a.m. by a 5'5 man with dark hair and a small brown mustache. He said he witnessed the man trying to pull Elizabeth to the street before pushing her to the ground. The attacker then shouted out Lipsky at Israel, so, in this context, it was basically used as an anti-Semitic slur, and it was referencing a Jewish man with the last name Lipsky, who had killed a woman the year before, I guess. So many of these things are anti-Semitic in ways that I do not understand. <laughs> so, haters. they were, honestly, haters. <laughs> Israel could see across the street a man who was lighting a pipe, and he reportedly followed him when he walked away, um, before Israel ended up just straight fucking running. He wasn't sure if the men were together or knew each other, but he was taken to the mortuary and confirmed it was Elizabeth that he had seen. This incident took place around the same time that Elizabeth had been telling the other guy, no, not tonight, but I'd like to point out that the streets were close by, so possible she rejected that dude and kept walking towards the club and then met another person. Hmm. <laughs> Who killed her? Her partner, Michael Kidney, was also suspected of killing her because of their toxic relationship and his lack of alibi. However, he was later eliminated as a suspect. I also use partner a lot because it felt weird saying, like, boyfriend and stuff back then. I felt like they probably didn't use those words. You know, actually recently I've noticed people say partner more than... Yes, people do, and I'm like, um, I feel like you're intruding on the LGBTQ community right now. Kind of, <laughs> Whenever yeah. I hear for straight people, I'm like, you don't have to do that. 
Like, it, it's, it's just, just kind of strange. It makes it seem like you're, like, in the community, too. And then you're like, oh, but I am straight and cis. And it's like, huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know if you also feel that way, but I think it's kind of strange. I, I do think it's strange. Yeah. Like, why not just say... Unless they are part... Yeah, yeah, they could be bi. Or one of them could be trans and you just yeah, don't notice. Yeah, like if they're not cis. Yeah. It's hard to tell. I guess oh. I can't really judge because I don't know what anyone's relationship is. But True. Sometimes I do hear it and I'm like, what? <laughs> anyway. Well, for those of you who don't know what cisgender is. Yes. It's when you are you identify as what you were assigned at birth. The sex that you were assigned at birth is your gender now. Did I say that backwards? <laughs> if you don't know what cisgender is, look it up. <laughs> also, yeah. we talk about it. We talk about it in our episode, the Black Trans Lives Matter one. Did we actually like say the definition? I think we did because I was like, I know some of you don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, you could cut this out then. I don't know it's, for sure. You're making me relevant. doubt it. The fourth canonical victim of Jack the Ripper was a woman named Catherine Eddowes, who had also been known as Kate Conway and Kate Kelly after two of her serious relationships with different men. So I'm going to keep calling her Kate from now on. (laughs) She had been described as being five foot tall with hazel eyes and dark auburn hair. Friends said she was intelligent, but that she had a fierce temper. Temper. (laughs) Temper. Kate was born in Wolverhampton in England in 1842. When she was just one year old, her family moved to London, and she ended up having ten siblings. There were eleven of them. That's That's like my mom. How much kids does your mom have? Well, I mean, like, her siblings. Oh, my God. I was like... My grandma. How much kids did she have? (gasps) Eleven. Kate had a tough childhood. Both of her parents died by the time she was 15, and she was sent to a workhouse in Bermondsey as... Bermondsey. As an orphan. She later returned to her hometown when her aunt got her a job, but she ended up being fired, possibly for stealing. She moved to Birmingham for a little bit to live with an uncle before moving back to Wolverhampton. After nine months there, she again went to Birmingham. I don't know why I had to include all that, but I did it. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So while in Birmingham this time around, Kate began dating a man named Thomas Conway, and they had two children together. Kate had a tattoo of Thomas's initials in blue ink on her forearm, which I thought was, like, pretty fucking cool for the 1800s for women to have that. Blue ink. Blue ink, too. I was like, dang, girl, you're a hipster. In 1868, the couple moved to London and had a third baby, but unfortunately, while living there, Kate began to drink and ended up leaving her family in 1880. Thomas began to get his army pension under an alias to avoid Kate, and he kept their children's addresses secret from her. So, he just didn't really like her much. In 1881, Kate had begun living with a new man named John Kelly at a lodging house in London, and she had been using sex work to help her pay for rent. When she was unable to afford a bed, she was known to sleep in the front room at a place nicknamed The Shed. Her, her partner John, and their friend Emily began to work as hop pickers in Kent in the summer of 1888. They picked hop. When the harvest ended, they returned to London and spent all their money except a remaining sixpence, which they split. Four pence to John and two pence to Kate. John was to spend the money on a bed for them to share at a lodging house, and Kate on a, quote, casual ward in the neighboring parish. Parish? Oh, parish. Uh, I'm not... wait, what's hop? Hop is, like, for beer, I think. Uh, Like, hops? 
Um, my question was more, what the fuck is a casual ward? I looked it up and <laughs> it was like, it's the section of a workhouse where people could be accommodated for a night. So I do not understand why she was doing this when her boy boyfriend, partner, whatever the fuck, was also paying to stay at a lodge house. So maybe they were fighting. That part was weird to me. I did not understand. So maybe it was like to get their own room? But he was paying for a place at one, and she was paying for a place at another. Oh, so it was two different places. Yeah. I don't get it. I think Uh, I probably misunderstood something, because I don't know what most of these words are. I didn't know what a lodge house was until this, and now I feel like I'm using lodge house in every paragraph. (laughs) On September 29th, 1888, in the early afternoon, Kate told John that she was going to visit her daughter and try and get some money from her. John, meanwhile, was noted to go to his bed and stay there all night by the keeper of the lodging house. At around 8.30 p.m. that night, Kate was seen lying drunk in the road and was detained at a police station until 1 a.m. when she was sober enough to leave. At 1.35 a.m., three men said that they saw Kate talking with a man along one of the walls of the Great Synagogue of London. One of the men described him as having a fair mustache and wearing a navy jacket, peaked cloth cap, and a red scarf. All they could describe of Kate was that she was wearing black. So, this might not have actually been Kate's. (laughs) Who the fuck knows? At 1.45 a.m., the body of 46-year-old Kate was found. If any of these dates sound familiar, it's because this was the same night that Elizabeth was killed, and they were killed within less than an hour of each other. Damn. Yeah. He struck twice. The policeman who found her body, named Edward Watkins, had previously been in the area 15 minutes before and hadn't seen anything out of place, and based on the warmth of her body, it was decided she'd have been dead for at most half an hour. Again, wasn't an exact science. (laughs) Watkins called out for help to two other watchmen, and neither of them had seen or heard anything. Side note, I think one thing about these stories, I kind of mentioned this earlier, uh, but the one thing that freaks me out is how, like, it's just crazy. Most of them were seen, like, right before they died and found really close afterwards, and scary to think that stuff like this happened so fast. Like, I've heard true crime stories where they're like, oh, she was in somewhere for 15 minutes, and by the time her boyfriend went in, she was dead. And I'm like, but it's only 15 minutes, what do you mean? How can it happen so fast? But, like... These people probably killed in literally seconds. I don't like it. I don't know. Just not Scary. fun to think about. Yeah. And our bodies are so weak. We're just so, so easy to just kill. I don't like it. <laughs> anyway, this time around, a different police surgeon named Frederick Gordon Brown was on the scene after 2 a.m. On first examination, he noticed that Kate was on her back with her head turned on her left shoulder. Her arms were on her side like they had fallen there with both palms up and the fingers slightly bent. The clothes were showing her thighs and abdomen. Her left leg was extended while the right was bent at the knee and thigh. Kate's throat had been cut, and she was also noted to be wearing a neckerchief. It's believed her death was instant, and thank fucking God, because after death, her abdomen was mutilated, as well as her face. Jesus. She had several cuts on her face, just like, all over, not even in any general direction, and the two that freaked me out in particular were cuts through her eyelids and the tip of her nose, which was cut off. Yep, 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 yep. Um, fun fact, you guys, Wikipedia has pictures of all this stuff. And when you're reading, you can't really avoid the pictures. I got to see all of this. It's not great quality because it's the 1800s, but uh, I was like, why does her face look weird? And I read it and I was like, it's cut through the tip of her nose. Oh my gosh. Terrifying. Don't look it up unless you're a psycho. Yeah, don't look it up. Like me. I know, Brandy, look it up. <laughs> it also said that there were several cuts going from her lips down her chin. <laughs> it's just gross, you guys. 
Her intestines had been taken out and placed over her right shoulder, and one piece about two feet in length was placed between her body and left arm. Her ear had been cut too, which if you remember in the letter, Jack the Ripper said he would do that in the deer, yeah, the deer boss one. Kate's left kidney was taken and part of her womb too. Again, this doctor believed that the killer must have knowledge on human anatomy, but this has been disagreed with, like I said earlier, and some people think the injuries just show a madman who was cutting in with no idea what he was doing. Yeah, he was probably just... He was like, what can I find? And he would just probably stick his hand in there and be like, oh, cool. I think I also read descriptions like the way he killed. He would just hit them with a knife and just go downwards. Like, straight just gutted them, dude. It's... I'm just so glad that they were dead when that shit happened. The morning following the deaths of Kate and Elizabeth, October 1st, a postcard was received by the Central News Agency of London. It was postmarked for the same day, and I'm going to read it to you now. Quote, I was not cotting dear old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow, double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping the last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. So, of course, there's some skepticism that maybe this letter was a hoax because they got, they actually got, like, a ton of hoax letters. I'm, I think I only read, like, three letters total. There's probably hundreds at least. But in 2018, it was analyzed by an expert who believed it was written by the same person who had written the Dear Boss letter. But as with the other letter and any other future ones that were signed Jack the Ripper that I don't get to, journalist Fred later claimed that he, journalist Fred Best uh, later claimed that he sent it as a hoax. I still can't tell if these layers are true because even if it was sent after the bodies were found, the fact that, like, the first author, like, said, hey, I'm going to cut off someone's ear. And then in this one, I mentioned that he cut off our ear, right? Okay, I did. For a second, I was like, oh, (laughs) backtrack a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I just, I can't decide if it's just a really weird coincidence or how fucked would it be if the journalist was actually the killer? No, wait, he wouldn't come forward saying that he did the letters. If he was, that would just be stupid. Whatever. But, I mean, he wasn't... They don't think it's him, so... Yeah. Kinda. I know. I I also could see, like, the journalist just wrote... Or, like, later said that he wrote these letters to get attention. Because it was, like, 50 years, almost, after the crimes were even committed. Mm. It's like, why come forward now? It's weird. But, again, the letter was published in hopes of someone recognizing it. But, again, nobody did. On October 16, 1888, George Lust, the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, received another letter that was postmarked from the day before. This letter reads, From hell, Mr. Lusk, sore, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you, t'other I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if only wait a little longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. Lusk. I said things weird because he spelled things horridly. Like, they're spelled real bad. But along with the letter, half a preserved human kidney came. What the fuck? What the fuck? So, let's get into the letter first for a little bit. Interestingly, it wasn't signed Jack the Ripper like the two letters from before, and the handwriting style was compared to the others and was found that it probably wasn't written by the same person. Or they could have been trying to hide, like, their usual handwriting. I don't necessarily think so, because this one had so many typos. Like, the other one, some stuff was misspelled, but this one was real bad. And this layer was delivered directly to Lusk, rather than the other two, which were sent to the news agency, so it seemed more personal. It should also be mentioned, of course, how there was a fucking kidney with it. 
They were unable to really tell much about, like, who it could have come from. They just said that it was the left kidney. And if you remember, Kate was missing one of hers. But on the other hand, it was the 1800s and people were fucking insane back then. So it could have just been some fucked up medical student's idea of a joke to steal a kidney from a cadaver and be like, Hello, it's me, Jackie Boy. Here's Jackie. Exactly. Instead of John. Oh, I thought it was Jackie. I forgot. Nope, that sounds weird now that I think about it. <laughs> I'm not really sure where I stand on any of the letters after reading this one because this one seems so real because the whole half a human organ thing, but then how do you explain the other two, which, like, we're talking about the ears and stuff and things that didn't happen. It's hard to tell what's real and what was a hoax. Like, he might have not even sent any letters ever, and these are all fake. But, like I said earlier about something, we're never gonna know. <laughs> so that's fun. <laughs> now onto the fifth and final canonical victim of Jack the Ripper, Mary Jane Kelly. Not much is known about Mary Jane's early life in comparison to the other women, so what I'm saying is mostly things people heard from her that may or may not be true. She was described as being five foot seven and having a stout build. She had blonde hair with blue eyes and was, quote, said to have possessed of considerable personal attractions. Which I think is a really roundabout way of saying she was hot. I don't know. I was confused. Yeah. She possessed of considerable considerable personal attractions she's hot right it's know. a weird sentence i don't like the way they spoke back then i'm like you speak weird <laughs> actually we'd probably sound so stupid if they could hear us now we're like sus, sus. <laughs> and just telling everything okay. gay <laughs> they're like why are they like saying gay they're well, like oh jolly were, yeah I'm really, I'm really happy <laughs> Uh, a friend said that Mary Jane was much superior to that of most persons in her position of life. Again, I think that just means, like, she was really cool. <laughs> just the she fucking way amazing. they said things. She was amazing and soup's hot. <laughs> Another claimed that Mary Jane was good, quiet, and pleasant, and that she was well-liked by everyone in the lodge house where she lived. Mary Jane was born in 1863, Limerick, Ireland, and as a child, her family moved to Wales. She may have had seven brothers and at least one sister who she was pretty close with. Mary Jane once claimed that she had been disowned by her parents, who were moderately wealthy. Around 1879, when she was 16 years old, she married a coal miner who was either named Davis or Davies, but who was unfortunately killed only after a couple years of marriage and a mining explosion. So, recently widowed and without any financial support, Mary Jane returned to Cardiff for a time to live with a cousin. It's around this time that it's believed she started doing sex work. Maybe, like, maybe her cousin suggested it to her. Because mm -hmm. I have heard people be like, oh, her cousin ruined everything. Uh, she wasn't arrested, though, for sex work, as far as I could tell, at least in Wales. Unlike the other ones. I think the other ones all had crim slight criminal records. In 1884, Mary Jane was back in London, and through an acquaintance, she was able to begin working at a high-class brothel. She became one of the most popular girls there and would spend her money on nice clothes and renting a carriage. By 1886, her life had unfortunately begun to go downhill a little. She began to drink heavily and moved to a lodging house in the east end of London. When she was drunk, she would, could be mean to those around her, which earned her the nickname Dark Mary. On April 8, 1887, Mary Jane met a man named Joseph Barnett and got a drink with him. And the next day, the two of them decided to move in together. I could not yeah. tell if they were in a relationship or roommates. Or both. Would move really quick if it was. Yeah, because on Wikipedia, it was saying, like, acquaintance with Barnett 
And then underneath it was like, relationship with Barnett. And I was like, what kind of relationship? You don't describe it well. <laughs> so, that's up for you to decide, listeners. <laughs> Friends with benefits? Actually, probably. <laughs> so, together they found a place, but were kicked out after not too long for not paying rent and for being drunks. They moved around <laughs> several other times, and by October of 1888, they had moved into a 12-foot bedroom with one bed, three tables, a chair, and a small tin uh, bath in it. There were two odd-shaped windows facing the yard, and one of them was broken, reportedly by Mary Jane when she was drunk. She had also lost a key to her room, so she would frequently use the broken window to lock and unlock the bolt on the door. Joseph would keep a coat on the broken window, and it was basically like their little curtain for privacy and to keep it from getting cold. So, Joseph lost his job in July of that year for stealing, so Mary Jane had gone back to sex work to support them. She would frequently allow other sex workers to stay the night with them on cold, bitter nights, as she didn't have the heart to turn them away. Which I thought was very cute. And, like, safety in numbers, you're keeping them safe and off the streets when there's a serial killer out. She's nice. Yeah, she's really nice. I'm not sure if originally the other sex workers were maybe, like, sleeping outside of the room, or maybe Joseph just happened to know them and like them better. Because he didn't seem to really mind until a woman named Julia began to sleep in the same room as them. And he really didn't like this and ended up leaving to go sleep elsewhere starting on October 30th. I I don't know what he had against this Julia person, but he was not a fan. It's so weird, right? But he still visited Mary Jane on an almost daily basis and would sometimes give her money. Mary Jane had a friend named Maria Harvey who had stayed the night with her on November 6th and 7th before moving on to a new lodging house. On the 7th, Mary Jane was seen buying a candle from a shop, and later a soldier saw her speaking to a man who resembled the description of the man Elizabeth Stride had been seen with before her death. He had very long white cuffs and a long white collar which came down over the back of his long black coat. I think I described everything in his clothes as long. (laughs) I need to find more adjectives, guys. (laughs) On November 9th, around 7.30-7.45ish in the evening, Joseph goes to visit Mary Jane, who is in her room with Maria. Mary Jane tells him how she's tired of the way she's living and wishes that she had enough money to go back to Ireland where her people were. Maria says she left at 6.55 and Barnett leaves around 8. There are no confirmed sightings of Mary Jane between 8 and 11.45 that night, but there is an unconfirmed sighting of her drinking at a public house with a woman named Elizabeth Foster, and a second unconfirmed one where it said she was drinking with a young man who appeared respectable and well-dressed with a dark mustache. In this story, Mary Jane was super drunk, I guess. (laughs) At 11.45, her neighbor, Marianne Cox, is walking home and sees Mary Jane ahead of her walking with a stout man. She thinks he's aged around 35 or 36. He's 5'5 and dressed shabbily in a long overcoat. He had a blotchy face, a carroty mustache, which I think is just her way of saying ginger. Oh. <laughs> and oh. I know, I read carroty and I was like, the fuck does this mean? <laughs> and uh, he had like small whiskers on the side of his face. It sounds real ugly, honestly. This, <laughs> this man was carrying a pail of beer along with him. The pair were standing outside of Mary Jane's room and as Marianne passed, she said goodnight, to which Mary responded in an incoherent way. Good night, I'm gonna sing. Mary Mary Ann uh, can hear her singing a song called A Violet from Mother's Grave, and when she goes out again at midnight, can still hear Mary Jane singing the same song. I don't, I think she must have been very drunk. At 12.30 a.m., a woman named Catherine Pickett is getting annoyed with Mary Jane singing and goes to complain before her husband stops and tells her to leave the poor woman alone. 
At 1 a.m., Marianne again goes back home and sees Mary Jane still singing and can see a light on in her room. Not long after Marianne leaves again, Marianne's just fucking hopping all over the place. I don't even know why she bothered going home. But uh, not long after she left again, a woman named Elizabeth Prater returned to her room directly above Mary Jane at 1.30. She didn't hear any singing or see anyone outside, but I should add that she was very drunk at the time, so she Mm. could just not notice. At 2 a.m., a man named George Hutchinson is walking down the street when he passed a man he didn't really notice or think about. He kept walking and ran into Mary Jane, who asked him for money. George said he can't as he spent it all, and Mary bids him farewell and says she must go find some money. He sees her talking to the man he had passed earlier. The man put his hand on Mary Jane's shoulder, and they both laugh. George hears Mary Mary Jane say, All right, and the man responds, You'll be all right for what I have told you. Again, their flirting is hilarious. I don't understand. (laughs) The man is pale with a slight mustache curved up at the corners, and he has dark hair and eyes with bushy eyebrows. He was wearing a soft felt hat pulled down with a long dark coat, a white collar, a black necktie, and he has a large gold chain on his waistcoat. He's also carrying a small package with him. George estimates the man is about 35 to 36 and 5'6 to 5'7. Which, one of the other ones, I don't know if you remember, the person was carrying a small package too, so... I think this is him, personally. I don't know who the fuck it is, but (laughs) I think it's him. But it's the same guy. Yes. (laughs) George follows them as they walk walk along and hears Mary Jane telling him, All right, my dear, come along. You'll be comfortable. Then the man puts his arm around Mary Jane and they kiss. She says she lost her handkerchief and he hands her a red one. They continue walking and George watches and follows them until the clock strikes three before leaving. So I guess he thought this guy seemed, like, suspicious, but also... Bro, you're hella suspicious for just following them around and creeping on them for, what, like, half an hour? (laughs) Or a full hour? Like, that's weird. (laughs) At 3 a.m., the neighbor Marianne returns home once again, but this time she does not witness any sounds or light coming from Mary Jane's room. She doesn't get back out, but does stay awake. She hears men occasionally leaving through the night, and at quarter to six, heard one leave, but she's not 100% sure if it's from Mary Jane's room. I should add that it was raining that night, so that possibly could contribute to people not hearing things. At 4 a.m., Mary Jane's upstairs neighbor, Elizabeth, is woken up by her kitten stepping on her neck. I thought thought that was just the cutest thing ever. I had to add it. She hears a faint cry of, oh, murder. What? But apparently, this is super common to hear, so she's like, eh, and ignores it. Okay. Yeah, another woman staying at a friend's nearby also hears the cry for murder and is like, eh, what the fuck you guys bystander effect bystander effect dude it's too real <laughs> so this is when the witness testimonies start to get a little more iffy at 8 40 a.m a woman named carolyn maxwell says she saw mary jane and described her in depth but i don't think she did a great job describing her but let me mention the two had only met each other a handful of times mm. at 10 a.m a man named maurice lewis claims that he saw mary jane and joseph together out the night before and that morning he had seen mary jane at 10:45 a.m the owner of the lodging house john mccarthy sends his assistant named tom boy bowyer uh, to mary jane to collect rent that was past due he knocked and received no response so he pushed the curtain aside to have a look and saw the mutilated body of mary jane Unlike the other victims, she was actually only 25 when she was killed. She was young. She was really young. He immediately went to get McCarthy, who, after seeing the body, told Bowyer to go to the police station. Inspector Walter Beck went to the room and requested the help of the police surgeon, Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who had inspected some of the victims of Jack the Ripper previously. 
Beck was also able to get news to Scotland Yard and ask for the assistant of bloodhounds, an idea that was eventually rejected as it wasn't practical. They wanted to use it to track the killer. I, I, I don't know how that would happen, but okay. <laughs> news of the murder spread fast, and a crowd of about a thousand people gathered on the street to voice their frustrations that another woman was murdered among them. Four other policemen had arrived at the crime scene between 11.30 and 1 p.m., and at 1.30, Superintendent Thomas Arnold ordered that the room be broken into. So just to be clear here, no one had gone into the room before this point. They were all just fucking around, standing there like, where's our bloodhounds? (laughs) So I saw two differing accounts of what they may have found immediately inside. One source says that they found Mary Jane's clothes folded neatly on a chair with her boots by the fireplace. The second one says that there was a fierce fire that had been possibly fueled by Mary Jane's clothing and possibly the murder's hat, maybe to give him more light when he was committing the acts of violence that he did. Dr. Phillips and another Dr. Thomas Bond, who was helping the case, both believed that Mary Jane had likely been killed between 2 and 8 a.m. You can see now why I said some of the later morning ones were probably unlikely, because she was probably fucking dead. Mary Jane was found lying naked in the middle of the bed. She was on her back with her head turned slightly onto her left cheek. Her left arm was by her body, but the right arm was at angle on her abdomen and the fingers were clenched. Her fingers were clenched. Her legs were apart and bent outwards. She was killed by a deep cut to the throat, which went all the way to her spinal bone. Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, since this was Jack the Ripper's first killing not in public, seemed to take advantage of the privacy by mutilating Mary Jane's corpse for far more than any of the other bodies, and they believe that he had been, had been mutilating her for two hours. Damn. He usually just did it for five minutes, and he did so much shit, so two hours? It was brutal. There was pictures on Wikipedia. It's, uh, not a good time. It literally looked like nothing. You couldn't tell what was what. It was gross. Mary Jane's abdomen and thighs were cut open. I don't know how else to say that. Like, sliced off the... Okay, yeah. Mm -mm. Yep, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. And her stomach had been emptied of all of its organs. Her breasts were cut off. Her arms had several cuts all over them, and her face was cut so much that you couldn't even recognize her. Joseph Barnett was the one who had to identify the body, and he was only able to recognize her by her eyes and one of her ears. Damn. Yep. Her organs were moved around the body, so her uterus, kidney, and one of her breasts was under her head, while the other breast was by her right foot. Her liver was in between her feet, intestines were on her right side, while the spleen was on her left side. The flaps of skin from when he cut into her abdomen and thighs were sitting on the table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just regular cuts until they said the flaps of skin, and I was like, so he like cut a layer off of them. Whew. There was blood covering the bed sheets and in a pool on the ground. The wall was also marked with blood. Mary Jane's face was cut all over. Parts of her nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears were removed. Her heart was missing and wasn't found. She had one small cut on her thumb that she may have gone in a last minute attempt to save herself. It, but it was like described as superficial, so it would have been like. It didn't Barely do anything. Like a yeah. paper cut. Like she saw him pulling up the knife maybe and then the last second did it. The knife used was believed to be at least six inches long and by now they were basically like, yeah, this dude definitely doesn't have any fucking medical knowledge. I don't know what we were talking about before. <laughs> it's just like a pocket knife. Yeah. 
Uh, and Dr. Bond even wrote, in my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or a, a horse slaughterer or a person accustomed to cut up dead animals. Basically saying, this dude just fucking went crazy. Vietnamese. <laughs> he didn't know how to shit. <laughs> a small amount of people don't think Mary Jane was a victim of Jack the Ripper at all, given her age and the fact that five weeks had passed since the previous murders and the other ones had like much smaller amounts of time in between. And her body was more heavily mutilated. For the mutilation part, I definitely think it's just because he had more privacy. Like, I'm sure he would have loved to do this to everyone, but he wasn't able to. As for the age and, like, the times, I don't think those are really big enough reasons for it to not be Jack the Ripper. I think it's still him. Especially the cutting the throat and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a writer who put forth a theory that she had been killed by Jill the Ripper dude <laughs> what uh so this was possibly a midwife who mary jane had hired for an abortion in this theory the midwife instead killed mary jane and burned her own blood soaked blood soaked clothes in the fireplace before making an exit wearing the victim's clothes possibly explaining the witnesses that morning who had seen someone matching mary jane's description and there's absolutely nothing to support this theory there's no proof she was pregnant there's no proof of anything i don't know how this person really made this up but I thought I'd share because I liked the name Jill the Ripper. <laughs> An obvious suspect of killing Mary Jane, if it wasn't the work of a serial killer, was her partner, Joseph Barnett. He was questioned by a detective for four hours and had his clothing checked for blood, but was ultimately released. Though generally thought of as an in innocent, a century after the killings, this theory was brought up again. Actors Paul Harrison and Bruce Paley put out the idea that Joseph had murdered her in a fit of rage and that potentially he had even killed the other victims as well to scare scare Mary Jane off the streets and away from sex work. Which I thought that one was actually kind of interesting. That one would kind of make sense. Others believe he may have only killed her but mutilated her body afterwards to frame Jack the Ripper after realizing what he'd done. After the death of Mary Jane, it seems that Jack the Ripper stopped his murders. Likely, he was institutionalized, imprisoned, or died. But regardless, thank fucking God. So, I'm going to move on to the suspects of the case. If you guys are still looking, you are angels. The suspects <laughs> are not as long, I swear. It's nearly done. And then Brandy. And then we... <laughs> we should have just done this as a two-part thing, but now the order we're doing, it just wouldn't make sense. Just stop now. No. <laughs> we'll pick it up next week. Goodbye. During the course of the Jack the Ripper investigation, over 2,000 people were interviewed, upwards of 300 were investigated, and 80 people were detained. But nobody was ever formally charged for the murders. So, that's a lot of fucking people, and I'm just <laughs> going to give you some of the highlights of people I think could be involved or interesting, because I was like, yeah, no, that's not happening. <laughs> also, it's kind of funny, because as I went through the list, I was expecting there to be, like, one person who was, like, the front runner in a way, and, like, super obvious, like, it's definitely him. But I have no idea who did it. I don't know. I don't know. I thought it'd be obvious. And it wasn't. There's like five of them. And I was like, oh, maybe. <laughs> so my first suspect is going to be Aaron Kosminski. This was one of the suspects who was brought up long after everyone was dead. Which I guess makes sense because hmm. you can't really get in trouble for talking shit about anyone and accusing them of murder if they're dead. So, Aaron started to become a suspect when people were looking over, like, old notes on the case, and there were a few mentions of someone with his last name. For example, someone saying, like, someone uh, named Kosminski had, like, a great hatred of women with strong homicidal tendencies. Some others were just straight-up anti-Semitic, like an assistant commander who wrote that Jack the Ripper was a low-class Polish Jew. And I'm not entirely sure how they connected this to Aaron. I mean, he was, like, a Polish Jew, but 
that seems like such a big jump. (laughs) But regardless, using small pieces of information like these and knowledge that this person had been arrested and sent to an asylum, in 1987, an author searched records and was able to find one inmate with this name, Aaron Kosminski. At the times of the murders, Aaron had been living close to the crime scenes, and it was noted in his case file that he was a paranoid schizophrenic. And y'all know people love to blame murders on people with mental illness. So, Aaron was described as harmless while in the asylum, though he had been taken in custody after threatening his sister with a knife and holding a chair up to an asylum asylum assistant. Attendant, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Also, that's like the most mild thing. He held a chair and they're like, homicidal. (laughs) He's crazy. Holy shit, lock him up. (laughs) So, these are Aaron's only two violent offenses on the record. He also liked to speak his native Yiddish and didn't speak English very well, so some are unsure how he'd be able to get the women into compromising situations where he could kill them in the first place. But, in my mind, like, they were sex workers, so if he was, like, a paying client, I doubt they'd be like, oh, your English isn't good enough. I don't want your money. <laughs> so, if Aaron were guilty, it's unclear why he would have stopped killing in 1888 since he wasn't sent to the asylum until 1891. There's a doctor who is commissioned by an author to do DNA work to prove that Aaron was guilty. So, the author was able to buy a shawl at an auction that supposedly belonged to the victim, Kate. According to the re- results, they were able to find DNA in the shawl matching both line descendants of Kate and line descendants of Aaron's sister. While this seems pretty clear-cut, it's actually not. So, according to a former London policeman and crime historian, there was no shawl listed among the items found on Kate bo- Kate's body. This just, might have just been a fucking random shawl. And, if it had actually been hers, then it was undoubtedly handled by many people over the years and probably a few who shared similar DNA profiles. Next up in my suspect list is Francis Tumblety, who, again, wasn't considered a suspect until long after his death. So, Francis was a good old-fashioned misogynist and especially hated sex workers after he had a failed marriage to one. He also reportedly lived in a lodging house in Whitechapel at the times of the murders. According to one story, which is honestly so fucking wild, I'm not sure if even I believe it, he had been hosting an all-male dinner party where he displayed a collection of preserved uteruses and jars telling the men that they came from every class of women what the fuck what the fuck man uh and if you remember some of the victims had their uteruses taken out on the other hand francis was older than most believe the ripper to be and he was 510 and if you remember like a lot of people thought the ripper was like between five and five foot five so maybe not the killer but definitely a piece of shit (laughs) frederick bailey Deemy, our next suspect was not a cool dude so, he had killed his wife and three of his four children by cutting their throats, except for one child he randomly strangled instead. He had also killed his second wife by cutting her throat. All these murders occurred three years after Jack the Ripper stopped and led to him being executed. He wasn't considered too much of a suspect because originally it was thought that he was traveling or in jail during the killings, but it was actually proven later that he had been in England in late 1888. He also had a good enough motive as he had gotten syphilis from a sex worker, and you know how these motherfuckers don't like to take responsibility when they catch STDs. Mm-hmm. So I think he could definitely be a probable suspect. The other two, I mentioned before, less sure. In 1894, a man named Karl Feigenbaum, I just went for it, he's German, he killed his landlord in New York City by stabbing her in the neck, not realizing that her son was also in there until he began to scream for help and Karl was arrested. This is the only crime he was convicted of, but after his death, by execution, one of his lawyers spoke out that he believed his client was Jack the Ripper. 
In 2005, a policeman doubled down on this idea with his own research showing that Carl, who was a sailor, could have been in England in the fall of 1888, as soon as Jack the Ripper murders began. But this guy didn't just think Carl was Jack the Ripper. He believes that he was a serial killer who had killed all over America, Switzerland, and Germany, too. Critics are unsure, as not all the victims were sex workers, but... I, anyone who was just in England at the time, I'm like, I could see it. <laughs> Another man suspected of the murders is William Henry Bury. William moved to London in October 1887 and worked selling sawdust to a brothel runner, and eventually he moved inside of the brothel, I, I guess it was also home, and he met a sex worker named Ellen Elliot. In 1888, the pair were married and they had moved out of the brothel. Five days into their marriage, their new landlady walked in to find the newlyweds in a super sketchy situation. So William was leaning or kneeling on top of Ellen and threatening to cut her neck with a knife. Super cool, super casual. The Leanne lady <laughs> evicted them. <laughs> I would have been like, uh, you can stay, Ellen. You don't have to go with him. <laughs> Throughout 1888, William continued abusing his wife. In January of 1889, they moved to Dundee, Scotland after William lied and told Ellen he'd gotten a job there. They rented a room for barely over a week before instead finding a place to squat. So William had told renting agents that he was interested in renting the place, so they gave him a key to check it out, and they just kept staying there. Why were people in the 1800s so trusting? Why had they just given him a fucking key? I don't understand. Because why not? Yeah, why not, I guess. On the back door of this flat, someone had written in chalk, Jack the Ripper, or Jack Ripper is at the back of this door, and on the staircase leading up from the property, it, someone else had written, Jack the Ripper is in this cellar. Super casual, super normal stuff. It's whatever. No biggie. No biggie. In February of 1889, William went and bought rope at a local store. On February 10th, he went to visit an acquaintance who loaned him a newspaper that wrote of a woman's suicide by hanging. His friend asked him to look and see if there's any news on Jack the Ripper, and William reportedly threw down the paper in fright. That same night, he took himself to the police station and reported his wife's suicide. So, apparently, him and Ellen had been drinking heavily the night before, and when he woke up, he found that she'd hung herself. Instead of calling a doctor, he did the next best thing, cut her body and hid it in the packing crate that they'd brought with them from London. Yeah, that's the best thing. Second best option. (laughs) He told the police that he was coming forward to tell the story because he was afraid that they would find out, arrest him, and accuse him of being Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Weirdly, he also had jewelry belonging to his wife in his pocket, including her rings, which they took. So, police went to his home, and along with Ellen's body, they found some of her belongings and clothing burned in the fireplace. After an autopsy, it was concluded that Ellen had been strangled with a rope from behind, and likely within ten minutes of her death, incisions had been made with a penknife down her abdomen. Like, what? What even would be your excuse to do that? (laughs) This doesn't even, like, help you make her fit. (laughs) William also had to break her right leg in two places to make it fit in the crate, mm. which I, that's just extra gross to me for some reason. All this other stuff, and for some reason, that's one of the grossest <laughs> ones. It just hurts. It, yeah. Mm-mm. No thanks. Investigators of Jack the Ripper at the time didn't believe William was involved in the killings. William was found guilty of his wife's murder and sentenced to death by hanging, which was carried out the same year. It wasn't until the 1990s that people started to like speculate more about him possibly being the Ripper. The chalk writing seen outside of his flat that I mentioned. So some people believe this could have been his way of like trying to alleviate his guilt by confessing. There's also the fact that he had Ellen's rings on him and other jewelry. And if you remember, Annie might have had rings on her the night she was murdered that were stolen by the killer. 
Although he hadn't cut the throat of his wife, he did mutilate her body afterwards, which is very Jack the Ripper. Critics say he wasn't the notorious serial killer, but rather someone just imitating the original, which I could see, but I'm unsure about William. Could be him, could not be. But he also, I should add, didn't cut into his wife as deeply as Jack the Ripper did. And the knife wasn't as intense, but I, I have no idea. The timeline certainly fits how he left town just months after the last Ripper killing as well. And I don't know. He's just a sketchy dude. Regardless, he sucks. <laughs> the final suspect, I finally, you guys, were down to it, is happening. Uh, I'm going to talk about James Kelly, who definitely had a bad temper, as you will soon find out. So back in 1883, James seemed to be extremely jealous when it came to his wife, Sarah, accusing her of cheating on him and having an STD with absolutely no proof. 17 days after they were married, James slashed Sarah's throat and she died three days after. Though, like, worth noting, it wasn't probably as deep as the other ones if she didn't die immediately. He was originally sentenced to death by hanging, but was later declared insane, so he was instead sent to an asylum. While there, James was a model inmate. However, on January 23rd, 1888, he escaped from the asylum, which was located in Berkshire, England. Following the death of Mary Jane Kelly, investigators actually went and checked the home that he used to live in, which was at the parents' house of the wife that he killed, but they weren't able to find anything. James eventually turned himself in in February 1927, 39 years after he escaped. I, right? He begged to be readmitted, and according to a local newspaper, said, I am very tired and I want to die with my friends. He stayed there for two years before dying of double lobular pneumonia. During his last years of life, James wrote memoirs in which he expressed a hatred for sex workers and writes of how he was hidden in London from August to November of 1888, which is exactly like the time that the murders took place. He later also was in America, and some believe he may have committed more murders similar to the Jack the Ripper ones while there. This one I could totally fucking see being a thing. I mean, like, the months he was in London, it was just, like, perfect timing. Perfect. But anyway, that is my story. Like I said earlier, this took me three days to write. Thank you so much if you listened to it all, because this is the most I've ever fucking written ever before in my life. And, um, we're not done. Brandy. Hmm. So, Mary Jane Kelly is generally considered to be the Ripper's final victim, but there were at least four murders that happened after the the five. Oh. I was like, wait, what? That was a cool sentence. (laughs) It was at least four murders that happened after the five that have been linked. Hmm. That of Rose Milet, Alice McKenzie, The Pitchin Street, Pinchin, Street Torso, and Ugh. Francis Coles. You know, it's a good time when they're referred to as the Pinchin Street Torso. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, on December 20th, 1888, 26-year-old Rose Millet, Milet? Let's I say Milet. I'll say Milet, yeah. Yeah. Was found strangled to death in Clark's yard. There was no sign of a struggle, and police believed that she had accidentally like strangled herself Jesus Christ with her collar while intoxicated or she just committed suicide what the fuck that's what they believed I don't believe it however faint markings left by a cord on one side of her neck suggested it was no accident and was eventually ruled a murder next week boo oh okay 
That was all. <laughs> that was it. On July 17th, 1989, shortly after midnight, Alice McKenzie was murdered in Castle Alley. She had suffered two stab wounds to her neck and her left carotid? Carotid. Oh, damn, again. Carotid. Carotid artery. Ugh. Had been severed. I hate the word severed. Cut. I guess it's still bad. (laughs) (laughs) On top of a seven-inch long superficial wound from beneath her left breast down to her navel. Uh, that sounds familiar. What the fuck? So, there's some conflicting views on whether it was one of Jack's murders or not. Some believe it was, and others believe it was just someone who copied Jack's Jack the Ripper's M.O. to deflect suspension. <laughs> suspicion. <laughs> I mean, I could see that. Because you did say it was superficial, right? Yeah. Yeah. But still, they couldn't go through with it. Or maybe... They couldn't hang. They were interrupted. It'll, oh, see, that could have been Jack the Ripper, and maybe he just got interrupted. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Much to think about. <laughs> yeah. On September 10th, 1889, the Pynchon Street torso was discovered beneath a railway arch in Pynchon Street. It was a decomposing headless and legless torso of an (gasps) unidentified woman aged between 30 and 40. Oh my gosh. And you know, I'm sorry to add this. I just don't know if you talk about it. Because everyone says like serial killers don't change their MO. Like they wouldn't change what they do that much. I could see him escalating to fully cutting off body parts. Yeah. I was going to say that later because of how they say that, like, the ways that they died or, like, the different MO. But I feel like he committed all of them. It's just he escalated. I Yeah. I almost feel like he was almost, like, trying to discover, like, what different things do in, like, yeah. bodies. And he's, like, some weird, like, fucked up scientist dude. <laughs> For real. Bruising on the victim's back, hip, and arm indicated that they had been extensively beaten shortly before her death. Fuck. The victim's abdomen, 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 abdomen was also extensively mutilated. <gasps> oh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um. Although her genitals had not been wounded. That's something, I guess. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, I guess. Um, oh sorry are you gonna talk more about her just one more sentence okay she appeared to have been killed approximately one day prior to the discovery of her torso oh god he cut her up fast yeah i was gonna say do you know if any of her organs are missing oh no well not that it was said anywhere yeah okay yikes yeah on february 13th 1891 at 2 15 a.m Police officer Ernest Thompson discovered the body of 25-year-old prostitute Frances Coles lying beneath the railway arch at Swallow Gardens. Oh, another railway arch. Yeah. If not, if these two weren't Jack the Ripper, these sound similar as shit. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Her throat had been deeply cut, but her body was not mutilated, which many believe was because Thompson had interrupted her assailant. It reminds me of, like, the one you were yes. saying earlier. I was like, what? That was like, wait, that's not the same one, is it? <laughs> what the fuck? I don't think my canonical five is correct. Oh, wait, were these all so close to mine? The White Chapel area? Yeah. <gasps> oh, shit. I feel like that should be included in mine. That sounds hella similar. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuck. 
Um, she was still alive when he found her, but she died before <gasps> help arrived. Oh my god. Oh my god. No, thank you. So she wasn't cut deeply enough? No. Ugh. In her case, they actually arrested and charged him with her murder. A 53-year-old James Thomas Sadler, who had been seen earlier with Frances drinking and later arguing about three hours before her death. He was briefly thought to be the Ripper, but was later discharged from court for lack of evidence on March 3rd, 1891. I wonder what kind of evidence they were even going for back then. Like, did he just have an alibi? Maybe their evidence was, we we have witnesses saying they saw you arguing. Oh, yeah. The evidence back then is so funny. They couldn't do blood work. They couldn't do fingerprints. Like, what could you guys do? (laughs) Just get confessions. <laughs> so that concludes the 11 that are definitely linked. Okay. And now there are eight. There are about eight more alleged victims. These are the honorable mentions. Yeah, the ones that are like semi-similar, but like not have not like been definitely linked to Jack. Some Ripper. of yours I definitely fucking think are the <laughs> same. The two archery ones, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. I could see that. Yeah. That's scary. So, in the case of Fairy Fay, it is unclear whether the attack was real or fabricated as part of Ripper lore. Fairy Fay? Fairy Fay. That's their name? Well, that's what they named the... Oh. Fairy Fay was a nickname given to the unidentified woman whose body was allegedly found in a doorway close to Commercial Road. Oh. I was going to say Fairy Fay is a really cute name. <laughs> Very whimsical. It's definitely a nickname, now that you say it. Um, On December 26, 1887, apparently a skate had been thrusted through her abdomen. What? Yeah. (gasps) But it's just kind of sketched because apparently no such murders were recorded in the Whitechapel area around Christmas that time, Uh that year. So it's pretty much like kind of sketch. Like, maybe it is fabricated, but... Oh, wait. I'm jumping the gun. Well, I was going to say, this is a year before everyone else died. This could have been, like, he didn't know what his little M.O. was, you know? Mm-hmm. Just trying shit out. Yeah. Oof. Many agree that the victim, Fairy Faye, never existed, but I kind of disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe someone, like, got rid of the evidence <gasps> or of the reports. You know, Jack Ripper could have been, like, a detective or something. Yeah, he could have been a cop. Just like the California killer, whatever that Golden State Golden killer. State killer, yep. That's the most terrifying shit to think about. Oof. I don't... I think that sounds real. Reading other shit's way weirder. <laughs> <laughs> I am Should so I sorry for the beeping, everyone. It's gonna be in here no matter what. I don't know. These cars are just backing their asses up all over my street right now. Damn fucking cars that's a truck oh trucks are backing their asses up all over that's okay and he's done the second alleged <laughs> <laughs> that was too good that was too fucking good oh my god i might have like that you. one in he's like oh you're talking <laughs> that was pretty good that was really good timing the second alleged victim was annie millwood a 38 year old widow on February 25th, 1888, she was admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Inf- Infirmary 
after being stabbed numerous times in her legs and lower torso. She was able to inform staff that she had been attacked with a clasp knife, another word for a pocket knife, Oh, okay. by an unknown man. She was later discharged only to die of apparent natural causes on March 31st. Uh, so about like a month later. What? What natural causes? I don't know. I was like, what the fuck? Uh, no. She definitely died of something. I don't think it was natural causes. <laughs> I was like, mm, scared. I know. I'm like, do you mean she was sick? Like, there's nothing natural about that. I don't think she was like 100 years old or some shit. <laughs> Annie was later believed to be the Ripper's first victim, although it cannot be definitely linked to him. Whoa. I mean, yeah, like I said, he could have been, like, trying stuff out. Because if you think about, like, the five ones that I talked about, he got away with them extremely easily. Like, I don't know if those are his first victims. Yeah, I mean, that's usually, like, how they tell. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's... He kind of got away with them super well. I feel like he's got to have some people he, like practice with for lack of a better word rather than just being so bold that you mutilate your first victim yeah that's that's weird that's really weird i I feel feel like we're cracking the case right now we're in it starts small you know like with those psycho kid killers that they start killing like cats and shit exactly i don't know and they escalate to people you've convinced me every person that you've said i'm like yeah they were a victim i know (laughs) it (laughs) a third suspected victim was a young dressmaker named uh I'm going to say Ada Mm -hmm. Wilson. On March 28th, 1888, she reportedly reportedly survived being stabbed twice in the neck with a clasp knife on the doorstep of her home. Oh my gosh. I could, okay, I could totally fucking see this because it's the same type of knife as the person before, Mm -hmm. right? The pocket knife. Like maybe he realized that these pocket knives don't work and that's when he like invested in a big boy knife. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I should put on the case. I feel like we could crack it together, Brandy. Well, yeah, because this was, this, this third one was right after, a month later, after Annie. Uh-huh. Fuck. Should we contact Scotland Yard? <laughs> <laughs> um, another possible victim, the fourth one, was Annie Farmer. She actually lived in the same lodging house that Martha lived in, Whoa. which was the first one or second victim I talked about. Yeah. Um, on November twenty first, eighteen eighty eight, she reportedly, she reported that she was attacked and had received a superficial cut on her throat, but they actually believed um, her wound was possibly self inflicted, hmm. because two eyewitnesses saw a man with blood on his mouth and hands run out of the lodging house shouting look at what she has done before they heard her scream what the fuck i have no idea what to think of this one this yeah this one was a little weird was he lying was she lying like like he could have been like oh shit she's about to scream pretends that she did something and runs out yeah oh i don't know that's weird again i'm like but this could have been practice But I'm like, why didn't they find this guy? Why didn't he, like, come forward and be like, yo, this bitch is crazy. She lying. If she really attacked herself, why wouldn't you say something? Yeah. Okay, we need to contact the police. (laughs) (laughs) They know all this, though. They don't know that's connected like we know it's connected. (laughs) You're right, you're right. Oh, you better lose your shit on this one. Okay, I'm ready. 
The fifth possible victim was that of the Whitehall Mystery, which was the term used to talk about the discovery of a headless torso of a woman in the base basement of a new metropolitan police headquarters being built in Whitehall. What? And that's another reason I think it's a cop. Yes, that's immediately what I thought of. <laughs> oh my god. When was this found? They discovered the torso on October 2nd, 1888. So that was... I think that's when mine was still committing the murders, but fuck. That's... Oh my gosh, I think that's during the five weeks that there was a break. <gasps> Jack the Ripper's a cop and he killed this person too. Confirmed. <laughs> Um, an arm and a shoulder belonging to the body were actually found prior on September 11th, oh floating in the River Thames near Pemlico. I'm saying these like it's I okay. know where that is. Okay, <laughs> so not killed during the break, but still. Can you imagine seeing an, what, an arm and a shoulder? Yeah. I don't want to see that. Just floating? It's, no, mm. I'm good. <laughs> <It's>, okay. <laughs> Then the left leg was discovered buried near where the torso was found on October 17th, 1888. Oh my god. So it was like in the same vicinity. Uh Uh-huh. Ew. Wait, what year was that? 1888. Ugh. Dude, this person wasn't even slick. Like, they're finding all the parts (laughs) that you hit. (laughs) Maybe they wanted them to be found. (gasps) And he was a cop. And he was a cop. Just so we're sure on that one. Mm. The head nor any other limbs were ever recovered and the body was never identified. The Whitehall mystery was eerily similar to the case of the Pynchon Street torso. Yeah, that's where, what I was thinking. Yeah, where the legs and the head were severed but not the arms in the know. other case. I don't know why. That's just like extra creepy that the arms were still there. Yeah. I don't like it's that. Slowly just. Torso. And they're so long, they're like hanging past. <laughs> I don't like it. Both of these cases are believed to be part of a series of murders called the Thames Mysteries that were done by a single killer. Whoa. They were dubbed the Torso Killer. It is debatable if Jack the Ripper or the and the Torso Killer were the same person or separate killers active in the same area. Which is crazy to think about. Two serial killers, same yeah. time, same area. Yeah. I'm scared. <laughs> like, what if, like, it, it was the same person? Or what if, like, it was two people that knew each other? It's more scary to imagine it's two people. Because it's like, True. oh, God, there's two people willing to murder me for no reason? <laughs> no, thank you. It's just kind of interesting. That's scary. God, the 1800s were a fucking wild time. How are people getting away with this shit? I guess they still do now, probably, and we just don't notice. It's a dark thought. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> Another possible victim of the supposed torso killer was Elizabeth Jackson, a prostitute whose various body parts were collected from the river Thames over a three-week period in June 1889. Ugh, gross. Yeah, this is wild. So do we know how they were killed? Because it's just their torsos? No. I'm imagining then, it was their throat then. Well, maybe. I mean, their, their heads are gone. Yeah. Could be covering up. Could be covering up that Jack the Ripper by taking their heads. I'm reaching. That's true. <laughs> Am I, I reaching mean, or is this making sense? Well, no, it makes sense because maybe he just went too far because you did say that most of them were cut all the way to the spine. Yeah, maybe, so he maybe wanted for these, to. Maybe for these, he didn't go, like, he went too far and he was like, fuck. Or if he'd been 
holding himself back before. True. Full of nasty. I, I don't like that. I said hey. it like that. It's gross. Hey. <laughs> this one's sad. Oh, no. So on December 29th, 1888, the body of a seven-year-old named John Gill oh. was found in a stable block in Man- Manningham, Bradford. This is the seventh alleged victim. The boy's legs had been severed and his abdomen opened. His intestines drawn out and his heart and his one ear were removed. What? Sketch. Were they there or they were gone? They were gone. Bro, this is Jack the Ripper. Right? Bro. The similarities to the Ripper murders led the press to speculate he had killed him. But I guess the boy's employer, a milkman named William Barrett, had actually been arrested twice for the murder, but released both times due to inconsistent no insufficient 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 evidence no one was ever prosecuted oh my god he was such a baby seven years old that's so sad (sighs) poor baby and lastly the eighth alleged victim was carrie brown she was a prostitute prostitute (laughs) (laughs) close (laughs) she was a prostitute working in new york city i guess she had many aliases but was more commonly known as Shakespeare for her habit of quoting William Shakespeare. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> during drinking games. On April 1889. No. Mm hmm. Yep. That year. That I year. remember it well. <laughs> On April, or in April 1891, okay. she was strangled with clothing and had been mutilated with a knife. Her body was found in the lot in a lodging house. Um. And she was also found with a large tear through her groin area and superficial cuts on her legs and back. No organs were removed from the scene, but they did find an ovary on the bed. <gasps> and they aren't sure if it was purpose, purpose, purposely? Pur- purposefully? Oh, purposefully. Purposefully put there or it just happened unintentionally during the struggle. Oh my god, her uterus. Or what was it? Her uterus? Her ovary, her ovary, bro. Her ovary just happened to fall out? Yeah. That's, or they aren't sure. That's too much for me. This was, was the final straw. I was shook. I was I, like, how the f- How? Nope. Like, what the nope. fuck? I hope she was dead and it was taken out. Because I, I cannot imagine the pain hope so. of it just falling out. Well, I mean, it says that she was strangled, but I hope that she actually died. Before all this shit. Before she was mutilated. Oof. That is so gross. Yeah, that was the last alleged victim. Jesus Christ. I'm so sorry, you guys. That this was, was a very dark. dark episode. And I think the only real jokes we made was just us fucking up our sentences. <laughs> For real. But you guys can laugh at us. It's okay. Yeah, I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, if you guys took the time to listen to this, first of all, you are uh, angels amongst men. And thank you so much because this was insanely long. I'll try to cut out a lot, but... Ooh. It, just so you guys know, we are at two hours and 15 minutes right now. My throat hurts. Brandy wants to go home. I want dinner. Uh, but yeah, if you guys want to email us, you can at thespookyshit.pod at gmail.com. Our Twitter and Instagram is spookyshit underscore pod. And yeah, thank you guys for listening. Message us if you like think you know who Jack the Ripper is. Is he your great-great-grandfather? Tell us. <laughs> we want to know. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Okay, goodbye. Bye.